Welcome to the podcast of Herbal Tales. My name is Annette Pereira. I'm a Dutch storyteller and I tell about the history, the symbolism and the use of plants. I share traditional stories where plants play a big role in. In this podcast episode, I speak with Beatrice Landoni. She's a PhD student at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. And she shares with us her findings of the research she's been doing and almost finishing on a flax species, Linum biene, and how it copes with its environment. It's a study on plant adaptation. You may know flax. It's a plant with a long history related to our human species because we've been cultivating it for thousands of years already because of the seeds and because of the fibers. It has beautiful blue flowers and it has a delicacy when it moves in the wind. Learn more about this plant in this episode. Enjoy! And you're in the final stage of your PhD, right? You focused on flax. Yeah, actually the wild cousin of flax, of the cultivated plant, Linum bayenne, and it's basically the ancestor of cultivated flax, so it's the plant from which humans uh, domesticated the crop. Mm-hmm. And is it that one easy to find still? Yeah, it's uh, distributed in the whole of the Mediterranean basin, And then in the west of the Mediterranean basin, it actually goes up to uh, along the Atlantic coast, so up to England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Naturally. It's yeah. Not yeah. It's okay. a it's a plant. It's quite common, but it grows like in in these patches, and so um, it's it's sometimes hard to find, even though it's common because it's not. You don't find it everywhere. It grows in very specific places. So when you're uh, outside looking for it, you might be unlucky and not find it at all, which it, which happened to me when I was looking for seeds. Well, so I'm not I'm not a botanist uh, by formation, so I have to learn a lot about plant identification, etc. I studied agricultural sciences, and that's quite wide. So you study about tractors, but also about uh, economy and biology. And then I liked a lot the biology bit. And, and that was in Italy at the University of Padova. And then I came to the Netherlands uh, to do a master in Wageningen during plant sciences. So it was more focused on the biology of plants in general. And then I, I, I came here for this PhD. Yeah. I learned to recognize the plant I study, mm-hmm. but I don't know about a lot about plants in general. Yeah. I mean, there are so many plants as well, but it's maybe handy to know the plants that may look like the one you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> and then how to distinguish yeah. those. No, right? I think it's quite... So once you uh, you know how it looks like, mm-hmm. um, it's quite easy to recognize. Within the linum group, there are other species that might look alike, but um, depending on where you are, you know that they don't grow together or they might grow together, so you can keep an eye on that. Yeah. The, the hard thing is in, in this case is that the plant is quite small usually. It grows in coastal environments. It's a bit harder, I think, to find it uh, inland. And uh, 
definitely along road margins and in places that have maybe calcareous soil and it grows uh, among other plants like grass, etc. So it's just really hard to see if it's not flowering. Yeah. And what is the period of the year that it flowers, that it blooms? And that's, that's what I'm actually trying to understand. Oh. So depending <laughs> on, um, on the geographical location, the plant uh, flowers can flower at different time. For example, where I live in England, it can flower throughout the summer because it's quite, uh, the climate is quite cool and wet. But in Spain, um, it flowers very early in the year, in spring, because then the dry season comes and, and the plant cannot survive. So uh, it's very, it has a very fast uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to, to study. So how, how the plant can understand, how this plant can understand when to flower, depending on where it is uh, located. Yeah. How it maybe already feels like a drought is coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's very important for the crop as well. This variation in uh, flowering that you find in the wild uh, species, the one I'm studying has been very, very useful to, to domesticate the crop and use it in different parts of the world because now the crop also has this variation and can be grown in different places as well. So that's also why I'm studying the wild species because we can understand more the, the crop as well. Mm, because that cultivation has been going on for already many, many, many years, right? Yeah, yeah. What we know is that probably the crop was domesticated around 8,000 years ago. It's one of the, what they call the founder's crops. The reason for domestication was mainly the fiber, right? Uh, actually not. No? So when it was first domesticated, people were harvesting it for seeds and to produce oil. And this was because in around Turkey, the white species and the crop uh, are very uh, branchy. They have a lot of branches. They produce a lot of fruits containing a lot of seeds. And that's because probably the environment there doesn't allow the plants to grow too tall. The Mediterranean is sometimes limited by summer droughts. droughts. So there the plant has a very fast cycle and it has a limited amount of time to grow. So it's not advantageous to grow very tall. You just uh, grow and try to make as many seeds as you can. Yeah. Um, but moving north, the climate is a b- bit more permissive and then you can uh, just grow taller and become bigger before you reproduce. Because if you're bigger, it's more, uh, you're more likely to, to produce uh, big seeds that uh, will have a better future, let's say. <laughs> Mm. Uh, so less seeds but bigger seeds exactly less but bigger yeah Mm. and then they started to use it also for fiber Mm. so the first fiber findings i think are around in fact uh, italy or croatia because that's where they started to be able to to use it for that reason Are most flax species annual plants or <laughs> yeah that's that's the other thing uh, I'm trying to understand so the crop is definitely annual that's what you usually want something that 
grows fast and uh, reproduces fast so you get the harvest but in the wild the, it might be that the plants that flower the fastest are annual but there are some other uh, plants in the white species that take longer to get to reproduct to the reproductive phase just take maybe two years three years yeah that's that's something i'm trying to understand uh, but probably it has to do again with the climate so if you come from a drier climate you might be uh, more likely to to go fast and reproduce within a year mm-hmm. or rather not yeah, yeah. Do you think this uh, vi- variation of that the plant then feels maybe the danger coming so it will reproduce? Is that per plant a reaction or does it go through generations that they kind of learn that and adjust? Along the whole species distribution, you might find the differences that are kind of written in the genes of the, of the plant. And those differences uh, arise through many generations because of natural selection or just by run, by chance. In some other cases, plants can uh, kind of pick up within a generation on what the environment is and then uh, um, regulate their life cycle according to that. They're very good at that, better than we are. <laughs> um, they're more plastic, that's the word they use. Plastic. In biology, yeah. I would expect it maybe to be called flexible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I will start to use, I will propose to use it. Linum <laughs> bayene, <laughs> the white uh, flux. For example, we found out that uh, responds very well to temperature. So when it's exposed to cold, it flowers faster. But this response to cold varies along the range. So it might be that plants that require cold to flower, if they don't experience this cold, they might take longer to flower and then flower in two years rather than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, we are not sure yet about this, but it can be, yeah. Mm. And the name uh, Bayana, does that refer to biannual or not? Yeah. That's uh, something I've always been wondering uh, since I started to study this species because, yeah, it definitely comes from biennial. But, yeah, as I was saying, probably within the species, there are different populations of plants that do different things. So not all of them are biennial, some are annual, some are perennial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the name comes from there. Yeah. All right. And the... Uh, so the crop is called uh, Linum usitatissimum. All right, usitatissimum. And uh, usitatissimum mm-hmm. means uh, very useful. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> quite a handy name, in fact. Yes. But then commercial varieties get their own name, so each variety has a name. I read somewhere that people do apparently buy also certain varieties to have in their garden as ornamental plants. Yeah, Linum flavum. It's very beautiful and they use it a lot in gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There is a vi- variety I've been growing that is called the Tine. And Tine was a famous uh, flax breeder. Uh, she was a woman, a biologist, a Dutch biologist that uh, worked a lot on flax and then a variety got her name. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> But after her death or during her life still? or I, I, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have mm-hmm. to dig more into that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I looked her up. Um, Yantine Tamis. I, I read also that she was like the second professor, female professor in the Netherlands. 1871, 19 to 1947. Yeah, I think she was quite a character to be able to reach that position back then. She, she did a lot for flux breeding, but also in general for, she did important work for population genetics, so how plants evolve and uh, how you can study that looking at uh, variation in different traits, like, I don't know, the height of the plant or the color of the flowers. So, yeah, she, she was not only a breeder, but also a, yeah, a hardcore uh, biologist. Uh, so you worked mainly with Linem Bayana, but you said you also grew that one that's named after her. So you grew different ones to co be able to compare or something? Yeah, you, you basically, you always want to compare things. And one of the things we wanted to compare at first was, uh, yeah, was the crop to the, to the white species. But then other, other research groups are digging more into that. So we kind of set it aside because the, the white species hasn't been described at all, basically. So it, oh. it was better to focus on that. Yeah. And, but they do um, like cross breed with each other. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, they are plants that are usually pollinated by insects. And the shape of the flower varies depending on the insect that uh, pollinates them. So they're an interesting uh, group of plants to, to study these kind of things. Ah, so the shape of the flower varies quite a bit between those species? Yeah, it's really... Uh, now, I'm not the ex expert uh, about this, but the inner part of the flower, so where you have um, the ovary and, let's say, the, the parts that produce pollen, mm -hmm. The orientation of these different parts varies accordingly to the insect that comes and pollinate them. All right. Yeah. So, so that the really insect can to... kind of rub the pollen off, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So you really have to look up close to see that as a human. Yes. <laughs> um, but am I, so Linum Bayene, we don't really know uh, if that's the main way it uh, reproduces. So we think that it mainly self pollinates. Oh. It does everything by itself <laughs> when the flower opens or even before that the pollen structure touches the ovary the pollen then grows into the ovary and, and the fruit okay. develops but uh, we also think that uh, there might be something mo more going on so probably insects actually do sometimes uh, fly from one flower to the other and and uh, have a role in that too Yeah, so because we think it mainly uh, self-pollinates, it has a harder time to, to cross. Yeah, okay. Um, but nobody has actually tried to do a full study about that. So it's still a question mark. But uh, an important thing, it's uh, sure that after the crop was domesticated, and the wide uh, flux crossed at some point, and that was fundamental for the crop to adapt to northern latitude and to get this elongated stem. Mm, so it happens for sure, but at a low frequency at least. Yeah, it can happen, but doesn't happen often. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, ex the expectation is that 
because the wild species is adapted to certain environmental conditions and these environmental conditions vary in the landscape you will find a lot of variation um, that you can use yeah for the crop for example and it is because the crop has been domesticated and then it has been grown in optimal conditions let's say most of the time yeah so it might have lost some of these uh interesting traits yeah it hasn't been exposed too much really they talk about domestication bottleneck so basically you really see in the traits the plant display and in the genes of the plant that there is there has been like a funnel effect on the variation that there was in nature for the ancestor of the crop the resistance to all kind of aspects becomes smaller 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 yeah until it's so tight as the neck of a bottle <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. yeah do you think the seeds you buy in the store to eat we can still sow and uh, plants will grow from it yeah yeah i think so <laughs> of course um i want to try it here on my balcony <laughs> yeah it depends because uh the seeds of a flax contain a lot of oils maybe they preserve less uh well than other types of seeds but uh definitely it's worth to try it i have seeds that uh, are from 2016 that still germinate so mm. yeah they should work <laughs> yeah i've actually eaten some of the seeds of my experimental plants but uh, my supervisor should not know <laughs> shall edit it out maybe. yeah no i'm joking i'm joking yeah do they taste differently because i think most people will never have tasted the seeds of the wild uh lime mm. by end no no i have to say i i didn't eat a huge amount because it's uh, still a wild plant but uh they taste more or less the same really mm. okay and if i want to sow them on my balcony i should um, use maybe also soil with a bit calcium mm. in it it grows i mean right now i have it growing in my garden um and it's in normal potting soil but i always add a bit of uh, perlite or sand to make the soil a bit lighter yeah because right. it likes it can stand like dry soil or wet soil but i think it really likes lighter lighter soil so a soil that drains quite fast yeah and they like sunny places i guess right i've seen it grow uh that's something i would like to look at in the future so i've seen it grow in very exposed places yeah very sunny but also uh in among tall grass uh or under little trees so maybe mm. there is some variation there so some plants like the shade more than others yeah but yeah definitely can it can stand the sun and uh i think it really likes some uh, air circulation some wind mm. i wasn't much of a gardener before starting this phd but uh i grew so many plants that now i have a little bit of a green thumb and <laughs> yeah maybe what i really want to say is that you can start from many different points and then get into the more biological part of a side of plants 
Yeah, but there are many ways to start and uh, get an interest in them, like telling stories about plants. Yes. <laughs> My mom uh, has a lot of balconies at home and a lot of plants on the balconies. Um, and she always tried to get me and uh, help her with those plants, but I wasn't much of a helper, but I really like to look at them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then, but now what I really liked uh, when I was a kid was to go to the mountains and I had an uncle that used to show me and my cousin mushrooms and plants while we were on walks. I prefer to enjoy plants in their own environments, I would say. But then, mm. yeah, during the PhD and, and the master, I had to grow plants in the greenhouse and then outside. And now, yeah, I really, I really like it because when you take care of them, you really understand that there are different characters and the personalities <laughs> and needs, and you have to be very patient. So I guess those are good things to, uh, to learn, mm. even if from plants, they might be applicable to people as well. <laughs> you have some of the, because you say they all have their personalities and characteristics. Are there some that stand out for you? For the, for the plants I'm using for my research. Yeah, I would say, so when you, when you do experiments, in theory, everything is blinded. So you shouldn't know, you're measuring things, but you shouldn't know what is what, uh, because you might be biased in your measurements. But uh, it's always impossible to be completely un unbiased, or at least not to know what you're measuring, because after a while you get to know your plants. So now I can kind of pick out if a plant comes from the south or the north of Europe. Yeah, I would say, I don't know. I have some populations that I really like. Uh, definitely the one from Sicily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because it's very sturdy and uh, yeah, it grows very fast and it makes uh, these bigger flowers. But also maybe the population we have from the extreme north of England. I really like it because it's uh, like the pioneer that uh, 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 is at the limit of the species range and it's surviving there. So, yeah, wow. that's, that's yeah. also one I like. And, and I, can, I can kind of pick them out from, from the other ones because they look in a certain way. So in the north of England, you say, what I found striking because I've been um, looking into stories a bit about flags and I uh, found a story from Lapland as well but that's very... the crop or the the wild um well the story goes that there was um well it must be the crop i think it it was about flax uh, fiber flax mm -hmm. um, but the story goes that there was um a shepherd in his in the field with his sheep and it was snowing and he was so cold and the life was hard in the mountains and he was looking across to the mountains and he thought there must be a better place than this. And he thought that so many times, so many times, that at some point he just left his dog, he told his dog to stay with the sheep and he walked away into the mountains to see what, to find that better place. Yeah. And then he came to the palace of a fairy queen and she was so happy to see him. She said almost nobody has the courage to leave his uh, or her place to see me, to come and mm -hmm. see me. And to thank you for coming. You can take anything from my palace that you see, the gold, the diamonds, the silver, mm -hmm. whatever you wish. 
but in her hands she had these flowers, these blue flowers, and the shepherd said, I would like to have your flowers. And then she said, well, that's a very good choice because it's the most valuable I have. Here you have it. And then he took the flowers and he suddenly he saw all black. And then when his vision came back, he was standing in his field, but an empty field. There were no sheep anymore. There uh-huh. was no dog anymore. And he was there with the flowers and he was running towards the house to see what had happened. He thought maybe all the wolves have taken his sheep because he wasn't there to take care of them. Yeah. But then he thought, well, what God gives, he also takes. Um, and then his wife said, wow, where have you been? You've been away for a year and you look so skinny. So actually the moment he had been in the palace appeared to have been a year and indeed the sheep were gone but then he could plant the flowers apparently they still had roots <laughs> yeah <laughs> in the garden in the in a plot before the house and they started growing the flax and the fairy queen appeared again and told them that they could use the fibers from the stems to make linen and um, that's what they uh, started doing Wow, it's a very cool story. So, well, I don't know. the crop grows, now it can grow much northern than, than the white species. So I think they grow it also in Sweden, especially um, in the past. Yeah, they were growing it there too, just for subsistence. But there are species of flax that grow, uh, not the one I'm studying, but there are white species that grow very high up on the mountains or in mm. the north. And actually, the first time I, I I told you, right, that I worked in this historical theme park when I was 15, 16, 17 as a side mm-hmm. job in the weekend, where prehistory and Roman times and Middle Ages were represented. So reconstructions of houses that are that were found in archaeological sites, but um, and representing the life of people living back at that time. And um, that was the place when I was working there that I first saw flax growing, because in front of one of the Neolithic farmhouses, yeah. they had this field, a uh, small field of flax, and they were also always so pretty. Also the mm. the way they move in the, in the breeze and the purple yeah. flowers, and then yeah, and then the people working in the park work with it how people really would do in the prehistory. So yeah. harvesting and putting the stems into the water, letting it rot a little bit so it, the fibers that are used for the line can be separated from yeah. the other fibers. And then weaving with it, spinning and weaving, yeah. <laughs> you you can do that. You can do the spinning and weaving with it. I weave now. I like weaving, um, mm. and I like to use linen for it as well. Uh, it's nice material, and it's nice, a little bit shiny, <laughs> mm. um, and it's yeah, it's nice material. Yeah, I think they are really reevaluating flax fiber because it's very sturdy and uh, it has some pro- pro- 
properties that other types of fiber don't have. I read somewhere that they were looking into use fiber, flux fibers to uh, to build them into Tesla's car shells. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It must uh, be special if it's going into a Tesla. <laughs> no, but I, I really like the... Yeah, flux fabric, it's so fresh mm-hmm. compared to cotton even. Yes, I know it, it has a, quite a big of um, capacity to absorb moist without that it beca- feels damp. Mm. So maybe that's why it feels very comfortable to wear as well. Yeah, I think cotton became in the 18th century very common to use, I think. Right, mm. 18th century. Yeah, before it was uh, flux, really. Mm-hmm. But now I think people are going back to flux for for some specific uses, like uh, yeah, high tech fibers and mm. fancy clothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did it trigger this research now? Also, you're interested in specific other plants. Yeah, I would be really curious to do some research on using trees as a study subject. Mm. Um, and uh, so that's as a researcher uh, as an individual maybe I would really love to study the plants that my mom has on her balcony mm. because she has been growing them for 20 years in the same pots without giving them giving them anything to oh. you know to fertilize them yeah. and they're still there <laughs> wow. so I think it's a, a I don't know, they have something special. They come from, no, a, they come from a lifeline or generational line that are yeah. always grown by ladies on balconies exactly. without giving them any nutrition. It's a miracle. Yeah. yeah. So flax has this important role in many cultures because it is so widespread, it's growing in many regions and it took this um, well role in clothing but also symbolically and um, in folklore. Because the flower, the blue flower of the flax for example is also the national symbol of Belarus and that's one of the countries where flax, fiber flax has been grown uh, a lot. The fiber of the flax was also used traditionally in talismans, in amulets to protect people from the negative, the bad, the evil. So it shows the positive association with flax it was believed to be able to protect people. Nowadays, in modern poetry and literature of that region, Belarus, Latvia, references to flax are often made when people refer to their homeland, mixed with a bit of melancholy because traditions that are maybe disappearing in the homeland. What I found striking is a similarity that I found in a tale from India and from France. Because in both countries, linen, so the fibers of flags, were used for cloth, for especially for priests to wear. Maybe common people wore a bit lib- less labor-intensive uh, fabrics, or at least in Western Europe, I know wool leather were more available for the common people. So priests wore cloth of linen, 
and it has this shiny quality to it right and then i saw that in both countries actually it is has this association also with the first rays of the morning with the sun with the dawn and that's very beautiful i think and in india they say that the goddess in the morning weaves from flax weaves a cloth for the god to wear and priests wear their uh, robes in the colors of dawn as well white yellow and red and then in france the word for the the name of the cloth of the priest is ob and ob does mean that cloth of the priest but also dawn there used to be this tradition until the beginning of um, uh, last century 20th century that in the region where i lived the netherlands but especially in the south of the netherlands in flanders and also belgium that the last bit of the harvest harvest of the fiber flax is offered in a church or before christianity it was often offered as a gift to the goddess of holda holda which is related to frau holle also uh, a common magical figure or powerful figure not only in the netherlands and belgium but also in germany yes this lady was the protector protector of women especially spinsters and weavers because they worked with flax so she was very uh, much associated also with the flax and i found that um in this uh, specific region in belgium just before the blooming season of the flax the children were sent into the fields and walk around in the flax in between the lines that were growing there and sing a song dedicated to this frau holle so actually kind of a prayer asking for her protection to be to the harvest to be good and the children to grow up in a good way as well then what i still wanted to share last thing i wanted to share is something that i read in a book that i have called the gardener's companion to medicinal plants it's a publication by the q gardens and it talks about the medicinal use of the flax and that's the seed that are used the seed was traditionally used for a wide range of conditions including cardiovascular respiratory and gastrointestinal disorders but also eye infections rheumatism tumors and gout and for controlling levels of cholesterol and blood sugar hot poultices from the seeds were made those were a popular remedy for treating boils and skin diseases such as eczema and herpes then there have been modern day medicinal discoveries and research suggests that the fatty acids indeed and the lining compounds in the seeds indeed have potential as a treatment for cardiovascular conditions other studies have shown that flaxseed can influence the mobility and secretions in the gut. This could lead to the use of flax as a treatment for gastrointestinal disorders, especially diarrhea. Flaxseed extracts also inhibit a range of pathogens associated with diarrhea, 
So a tea made from an infusion of the seeds mixed with honey and lime juice is considered a remedy for mild respiratory disorders and constipation. Thank you, Bea. Thank you, Beatrice Landoni, for sharing this knowledge and experience with us. And all the best for the finalization of your PhD. I got totally inspired. I've been sowing flax seeds immediately after recording this episode, after this uh, conversation we had, and they're growing very well. So I'm very happy with that. Um, thank you for listening as well. We hope you all enjoyed. Feel free to share this episode with anyone you think who might appreciate it. And um, have a look at herbaltales.com, the website, to see. Sometimes there are some online events coming up. So um, see you soon and have a great day. Bye.